And welcome once again to Freightonomics, the podcast where we discuss what's going on in the freight market and combine that with the macroeconomic information out there. And today is one of those special days where we are going to very much focus on the data of the situation uh, and break some of those numbers down to make sure that they are usable and actionable for you, but also caution you on how to use some of this data. And with me as always, Anthony, Anthony Smith. Smith. <laughs> I'm here. Lead economist here at Freight Waves, and you're gonna be checking those LinkedIn uh, viewers uh, here throughout the show, so make sure to check in, uh, give us a shout, uh, especially if you have an opinion on a matter that we're discussing. So, you know, Anthony, we've had a lot of uh, a lot of turbulence over the last couple of uh, last year, I should say, uh, with the COVID thing. And there's a lot of information going on uh, or that's come out there that's really been pushed forward. And, you know, it, it can be hard to sort through what kind of data you need to look at, what you need to be aware of, what certain data sources are measuring and others. You know, obviously here at Freightways, we have our own data that we look at that we're very comfortable with. We, we understand it implicitly, but there are a lot, there's a lot of data out there. There's a lot of information being pushed out there more than ever, thanks to COVID um, and all of its fun that has brought with it, uh, that has made things, you know, you're almost sorting through just folders of information and you don't really know what's accurate, what's not. There's certain things that are going on out there. And today we're really going to break that down. Uh, but first, of course, we got to hit up some stories of the day. That's right. So there's a lot of stuff that's been carrying over from previous shows, especially with that first story of the day. We've been talking at mm -hmm. nauseum about how what's going on with the ports action. And so mm -hmm. there's more activity surprise <laughs> on the West Coast, right? Yeah. So this this isn't this isn't necessarily huge news by any means. Guess what? Uh, shippers are going to get rate increases <laughs> on right. the uh, on the maritime side. Um, and Greg Miller, of course, breaks this down on Freightways.com, American Shipper. He does a lot of good work uh, on the maritime side. Uh, pretty much an expert, if you ask me, in this. And it pretty much nails down the fact that a lot of these shippers are going to get some pretty significant rate increases on those contracted rate agreements. You know, we measure um, spot market movements here at Freightways. Uh, you know, the Freightos uh, indexes that we have here have been at record levels for the past year almost. Once we hit April, I believe we'll, we'll have sustained uh, significant year-over-year -year growth for a full 12-month cycle, which appears to be the case uh, this year. Over $4,000 per 40-foot uh, you know, equivalent unit. Uh, and that was up from $1,300 moving Trans-Pacific uh, from Asia to the North American West Coast. That's right. So, I mean, like you said, it's a lot of the same, but, you know, surprise, shocker. So, rates are going up and kind of alluding to some of the conversations. I won't spoil it. Um, some of our other talking points later on. It's been going on that we thought was going to peak, what, like mid last year into the latter half of last year into earlier this year. And it's like, where is that peak ever? Like, where's it going to settle? Yeah. Are we going to settle? <laughs> are we? Yeah. Is, this, is it ever going to settle? I was on uh, a few calls last week with people that said, you're not, don't, don't get too used to anything anymore. Don't get too comfortable with anything anymore. And that feels like more reality, <laughs> the longer this, this drags out with, with COVID and all the disruptions that have come from it. So, you know, contracted rate agreements, uh, long-term rate agreements, uh, as they're, you know, affectionately known, uh, you know, going to experience, you know, the more volatility you have in a market, 
that they're going to have to incorporate into that long-term pricing uh, model to make sure that they're capturing that. But it also makes things a little bit more uh, reliable on the shipping side. If you're paying more for it, they're less likely to uh, have too much uh, swings in capacity on that end. But maritime, of course, very different than the truckload side. No shock that we're going to see some rate increases there. Uh, and speaking of rate increases, uh, Forward Air comes out and says 6% uh, rate hike, a general rate increase. Anthony, I don't know if you know this, but in the LTL sector, they put out general rate increases every year for a lot of their contracted accounts. So unlike, LT, unlike truckload, uh, where you're basically on this bid annual bid cycle, uh, mini bids, uh, you know, obviously being more of a thing here lately, or rollout bids, however you want to call them. Uh, LTL, they have an annualized cycle. There's not a big spot market presence for LTL. So every year when they, they have this group of customer base, uh, not necessarily a high volume customers, but they push out these rate increases uh, and they target most normal years about two to three percent uh, for a rate increase, just generalized rate increase to get that uh, a little bit of a boost to the revenue side because they do guarantee capacity, unlike the truckload side where most of that capacity, the truckload carrier has the option of saying, no, I'm not going to. Not that the LTL carriers don't, they just don't exercise that option uh, you know, for reasons that their network is a little bit more in place uh, and a little bit more consistent uh, versus the truckload side where that's a very fluid situation on the truckload network side versus the LTL. So they go out and they have a little bit more leverage. This is more of an accepted uh, practice in the LTL sector to get rate increases. Coming out with a 6% rate increase, it's right in line with FedEx uh, and ArcBest who also put out there that this was going to be you know, this is their general rate increase as well is going to be right in line with this. So it sounds like this wasn't, again, wasn't too much of a surprise. It was expected. This is something that happens regularly. And so the rate increase wasn't out of this world. I wouldn't say out of this world, uh, but it, it was, it is a decent jump. <laughs> yeah. uh, like I said, two to three percent most years. This is five to six percent. Uh, it's twice what you would normally see targeted here, even though you do have those years where you can get more out of it. Um, you know, but I think in a lot of the truckload sector, uh, they're targeting, you know, some of them are targeting in the double digits. Gotcha. So 10% and higher. I don't know if that's going to be attainable in mass. Uh, I think a lot of them will be happy with a five to eight yeah. <laughs> uh, type range, uh, which appears to be a little bit more sustainable, especially if, you know, seeing what happened in 2018, 2019, Rates came down uh, significantly. We saw the uh, CAS uh, truckload line haul index collapse in right. January, right before COVID. Uh, and that was representative of the fact that, you know, a lot of those contracts got implemented at a lower rate than they were the year before, which was, you know, artificially propped up by the 2018 disruptions. So one of the things, a question I have for you, Zach, I mean, when we look at the logistics industry, when we're looking at things that happen within this market, a lot of times when we see large macroeconomic trends impacting the freight industry, it's like there's this lag, right? Mm -hmm. So um, something might happen, you know, more trucks are needed, more capacity is needed. Then you don't see that until it hits the market <laughs> when it's too late. What's the lag or is this response pretty much on time or on par with uh, the rate increase? Is this a lagged reaction? No, I think, I think yes and no. <laughs> it's, a, it's a lagged reaction for sure in the way that the market's already been superheated. Uh, capacity has been very tight for the last several months, well-documented, uh, multiple data sources on that. Um, but at the same time, we are at this, you know, this is the time of year where rate increases, contracts get implemented. This is kind of the, 
they're setting the tone for the upcoming 12 months. The rates get set into place. Um, and we're able to, you know, really they're making their budgets. You know, they made their budgets at the end of the, the quarter last month, or, you know, I guess now it's two months ago in December. But this is where everything gets set up for the rest of the year. So these rate increases are right on time in that regard. But yeah, they're a little bit slow because as we know in the truckload market, tender rejection rates through the roof for 20, you know, for, for the past, what was it, uh, four, five months of the year, we were over 20% tender rejection rate, meaning that one out of every five, one out of every four loads was being rejected. You would think that it might make sense to adjust some of these long-term rate agreements throughout that period to, a, to kind of bring those tender rejection rates down, guaranteeing your capacity, making sure that your fourth quarter runs are a little bit more in line, but it's very difficult. It's easier said than done for a lot of people to do. So just getting into this real quick, I have Satuta Menessa here saying kind regards, Peter Bull in the conversation here with us. He mentioned 6% is out of this world, but then again, it's a brave new world <laughs> and simply because they can. Yep. Um, we have Dane Adams saying good afternoon. Uh, he says we export millions of pounds a week. It's a nightmare to export containers. Has been for a couple of months. Our booking rolling is almost has almost become a joke. Um, we have Matt Lindner enjoying the conversation. So, guys, thank you for the comments. Thank you for the interaction. Please continue to, you know, just kind of pour in with these yeah. uh, No, these we, ideas. We, we were talking about the export situation a few months ago in December yeah. uh, where the container was an issue, where we were seeing, uh, you know, where these carriers were basically saying, nah, we're not even going to wait around for you. Uh, right. we, we're making all this money out in uh, China right. all on this freight. So they they basically were bypassing the exporter side of things, which, again, exacerbating the container shortage issue. Um, by not picking up the exports going the other direction, it's just, it's madness. Right. Like that, doesn't, that doesn't necessarily uh, make for a good long-term situation. So I feel, I feel his pain on that one, yeah. for sure. Yeah, and especially that long-term situation is just like, like Peter says, it's a brave new world. And it's just like, what is going to be the expected yeah. reaction to these, to these movements in the long-term? Or are we just kind of moving from a day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month scenario? Yeah, and, and on that note, you know, that this brave new world that we're entering, like we don't really know where this is going to settle, if it does, as a lot of people are wondering. Uh, you know, tender rejection rates. Uh, the most recent numbers from yesterday, 22.8%, a 1%, a full 1% jump on the national index side. Uh, so... We are in February. Yeah. <laughs> February just started. This is not a normal uh, pattern to see emerging this time of year. Um, you know, our data is pointing to the fact that this market is still very much in a tight situation, still very capable of getting tighter uh, at points in time. Uh, again, we just had a big northeastern storm that contributed to some of this. So it's hard to really discern how much of that was involved with this recent jump. Uh, but it certainly did because we see markets like Harrisburg, uh, Philadelphia, Baltimore, uh, Elizabeth, New Jersey, all getting in on this action with significant day-over-day jumps uh, this week, uh, which, again, a little late to be rejecting freight, <laughs> yeah. seeing as the storm is already off the coast. So yeah. it's, it's, it's interesting to see some of this, uh, this carrier behavior uh, you know, happen you know, almost as the storm's hitting, so it's almost too late <laughs> yeah. for them because these tenders are generally for two to three days out. Uh, so they're rejecting freight for Friday, <laughs> and by that time, the roads are going to be clear and everything's going to be out, out of the situation. But what this really means is that a lot of their networks were disrupted. 
And with the network disruptions being as they are, you know, if they couldn't get some of these deliveries into the Northeast, you know, in the days prior, or maybe they couldn't get out of the Northeast and get their runs reset, these networks are already extremely strained. And knowing that, you know, you can actually start to make some of these decisions moving forward as we have this lagging uh, impact of this significant storm that you would think would have more of a forward-looking impact as tender rejection rates go up before the storm. But in fact, uh, they're going up after the storm passes. That, that's going to mean here the next few days, if you're operating in a spot market up in the Northeast or even anywhere in the country for that matter, you're probably going to see a little bit more uh, upward pressure on those rates. And it's going to be a little bit more difficult, especially if you're dealing with a carrier operating in that corridor. So when we're looking at that, Zach, it's like one of those things is like, is it up? So there's a backlog here. Mm -hmm. So when we get back on track with everything, is this going to just kind of, like you said, exacerbate what we have in the current market? So where does that momentum ever just kind of slow down? Yeah, for, it's just like when you're in a traffic jam, Yeah, uh, the way I look at it. When the market is as tight as it is today, and we're looking at our tender rejection rates, our tender volumes, tender volumes are flat. Yeah, They didn't move. Tender rejection rates went up significantly. So demand did not increase. This is a supply side situation. This is where understanding your data uh, makes a lot of, it, it helps you. Right, right. <laughs> uh, knowing that this is probably not going to be sustainable uh, for a longer period of time because we're not seeing a fundamental, you know, underlying change in the market demand situation, which you have to have supply, contract, or demand increase to have that happen. That's not happening here. Like Freightonomics. <laughs> I know, right? Um, so this is probably not going to be a sustainable event by any means. Um, but uh, at the same time, making this actionable, I mean, you're, you're going to have to be on high alert here in the next week. So looking forward, we still haven't seen any weakness or any underlying weakness in the tender rejection or tender volume numbers, though. Like I said, tender volumes are flat. Uh, they're al we're already seeing, like, Tender rejection rates hover around 20, 21% in the national level. That's still extremely tight. Um, so we're not necessarily, anything that comes into the market now at this point is going to be uh, something that has a much bigger potential to disrupt the market than it did, say, in 2019, when there was a lot of looseness in the market. There was a lot of excess capacity available. People were still buying trucks, adding it, et cetera. Uh, that is simply not present in 2020. So like I said with the traffic jam, think about how long it takes for that traffic. Once traffic subsides, it still takes a while uh, for that traffic to you know, kind of ease up. Even after they clear the accident and the wreck is cleared out of the interstate, it takes another solid 30, 30 minutes to an hour to clear that up. But it has to have low traffic inflow. So the influx has to slow down. And since that demand aspect of the trucking industry has not really slowed down any, that means we're still in this long run process of trying to figure out, okay, we're still clearing the accident effectively. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we have some insights from the man himself, Z2, Zach Rogers mm -hmm. of Colorado State. He jumps in to say, if empty, empty containers can't get out of the U.S. ports, five-day average waiting time at the port of L.A., then they can't get back to China to be filled up again. Combine that with the clampdown on north-south river traffic within China, and it will be a long time before we have physical capital necessary to dig ourselves out of this hole. Yeah. And, and you know, th this is an interesting thing to me because you're talking, we're talking about empty container flows, things like that. This is an indication of what is going on with our supply chains. Transportation is just one particular point along those supply chains. And when you can't get... Uh, a portion of that supply chain is broken, 
the entire thing cannot function smoothly. So that right. means that what we need to watch out for here in the coming months is continued disruption. We are probably going to see this wave-like pattern emerge where you're going to see certain things spike and then contract. And you're going to say, okay, everything's getting better. No, wait, it's gotten worse again because it's going to take a lot less to disrupt things than it did in the past. Yeah, we even have Peter jumping back in before he switches to the next subject. He says, would love to know how many folks are out there prepaid and booked loads in advance to uh, secure shipments. Uh, meaning like every, like booking a hotel room for when you arrive for either inbound or outbound shipments. So it's a lot of gaming that mm -hmm. like just trying to position yourself in the right way yep. just to be active in here. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and the information is all over the place. Yeah. You know, I, you know, looking at spot rates, for instance, you know, what is that spot rate measuring? Uh, you see them go up, you know, every now and again, but that spot rate has a lot of other information inside of it. So uh, you know, to me, it's more like looking at, you know, in general and aggregate at a high level, looking at average spot rates at a high level, wonderful situation. Right, right. Uh, you know, when you have a lot of volume behind it, et cetera, it's a wonderful thing to look at to tell you in general where the market is headed. Uh, but that being said, there's so much bias in that number. And this is where you can get, you know, bias is that kind of take over mm -hmm. a measurement versus where you can have the, the less things that you're measuring in a number, the more pure that number is and the more isolated the measurement. Right. So a tender rejection to me is a lot more isolated. It's a lot more pure. You're talking about a carrier saying yes or no to picking up a load from a shipper. Done. Right. <laughs> right. And then there's a count of those actions over time. That's it. Spot rates. They have, is it a team transit? Is it expedited? Is it... Is it in, you know, a network that needs, that has an abundance of capacity? Is it in, in a network that's, you know, desperate to get out of a situation? What's that carrier exposure? Is it a regional? Is it a uh, five uh, person or a five <laughs> truck carrier? Is it a thousand truck carrier? All these things come into play in that spot rate number. Having been that guy that prices these numbers, you're talking about varying carrier costs, uh, varying exposures of customer bases, um, and all sorts of accessorial charges, which I think are mostly removed from a, a lot of the, you know, high level aggregated data that's available in the market today. But still, there are uh, all in rates. This is a very bad habit in the truckload industry that you just say, I'm going to charge you $2,000 to go from Atlanta to Dallas <laughs> right. today. That, that includes fuel. <laughs> and it's, it's very, and you kind of have to back in uh, to what's being charged in there. And there's job sites and there's non-doc deliveries. There's inside deliveries. There's things like that that'll get lumped into these rates. Um, not to say that that can't happen with other data sets, but you're, you're, you're really putting yourself out there not knowing what kind of, you know, values you're measuring. And this is kind of an inherent throughout a lot of the data uh, that's available in a lot of different sources today. And speaking of that, I mean, you're talking about the data is much more pure when you're looking at that one specific thing. And so that gets into data integrity, right? And that kind of seeps into the theme of today's show yeah. of data dump and really knowing what's an important data point, what's an important data source, and what you can pull from it. Yeah, and, and knowing the context of the data. I yeah. mean, if, you, if you're looking to get data that's not biased, you're not going to find any data. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because data is there to measure specific things, so that makes it inherently biased towards whatever it's supposed to measure. Right. Tender rejections are there to measure tender rejections. Right. <laughs> spot rates are there to measure spot rate movement. Right. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> um, and they can mean different things to different people. So understanding their use case in your own organization, uh, you know, 
I talk to a shipper, I don't use the same explanation about tender rejections that I talk to a shipper that I use to talk to a carrier about. Right. It means it's two totally different use cases, but they're measuring the exact same thing. Uh, so understanding those biases is key to understanding what you're using this information for. And I think in our, you know, you, we, when we were growing up, you know, when I was growing up, I should say, it started to be the age of information <laughs> with uh, internet and Google and everybody really having a rise to prominence. And now it's become more like an age of over-information or even misinformation, if you will, uh, as there's abundant data sources, there's abundant information on the internet now. Wikipedia is notorious uh, for having been abused in this regard where people can just post things publicly. We have social media influencing a lot of different aspects of transportation and supply chain management nowadays, as well as the overall market. We just had a huge social media uh, use case here in the last week with GameStop. GameStop was GameStop. huge. And Wall Street bets. Yes. Um, you know, there's always been, you know, this the way that you can actually manipulate data now yeah. is, is amazing. And not that they manipulated data, but they manipulated the market <laughs> and were able to kind of, you know, send this, you know, is GameStop worth $300 a share? Mm -hmm. <laughs> no, there's always been a disconnect between the financial side and the operational sector. GameStop's underlying value certainly not <laughs> matched with that, but that's kind of inherent in business today, is it not? It is, and I mean, just completely sidetracked from, you know, <laughs> the whole scenario around GameStop yeah. and Robinhood and just looking at it, and I felt so conflicted because GameStop, I think their model is it what, power to the players or something like that? Yeah, yeah. And then Robinhood, you know, still from the rich, gift to the poor, mm -hmm. and it's supposed to be the advocate for the people. I felt conflicted because on one hand, I'm like, all right, Robinhood, what are you doing? This is exactly opposite of what you are supposed to be doing and your whole premise of a company, your statement and what you stand for, your namesake. Yeah. And then GameStop, I felt conflicted because I have nostalgic memories at GameStop, <laughs> for one. But GameStop, has GameStop ever had my back? Right. Like, I, I remember going to the store <laughs> as a kid and just like having like six games that just came out like three months ago, a console to trade in. Like, yeah, the best we can do is $7.50. $7.50. Right. And it's just like, or you can get in-store credit. Which, well, what do you want, kid? They got a business. They got a they business, got a business to, run. to run. But, I mean, at the same time, you're looking at GameStop and, you know, that price. You know, if you're going out there and you're buying GameStop stock at $200 a share, you know, you're, you're not in on this Wall Street bets action and the yeah. Robin Hood side of things. It's up to you, you know, to know, okay, that's not... That's not an accurate valuation. You've got to go into the data. You've got to go into the information to figure that out. Um, something we also look at uh, relating to the financial sector is earnings. Uh, earnings valuations and earnings estimates. Uh, and we've had several of them. UPS, of course, dominating yeah. <laughs> some of those earnings headlines in the transportation sector this week. Um, you know, they, they came out and they've obviously offloaded uh, UPS freight which, shockingly, if you check out FreightWaves.com, the CEO basically all but said, uh, don't let the doorknob hit you on the way out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, the CEO of UPS essentially said, we're glad that they're going to somebody who actually wants them. <laughs> I mean, ouch, right? <laughs> One last jab. <laughs> but UPS obviously has other interests and other things going on right now uh, with the parcel game being so elevated here over the next little bit. So some of the information that I gleaned from this, <laughs> you know, wading through the, the nonsense, if you will, 
UPS was trying to get out of this LTL game. They saw an opportunity to kind of offload it in this market. Um, they knew it never really worked, but they knew that their parcel sector was going to take over. Um, right. this, this was forecast a while back. They saw this e-commerce boom happening. They can't simply combine LTL and partial business together. Uh, looking at the earnings for share, they obviously didn't miss any right. <laughs> uh, anything this, this past uh, quarter. So, you know, looking forward, though, is this partial game going to be sustainable for them without the LTL weighing them down? Now, having been in the industry for a bit, I have my own internal thoughts <laughs> about UPS's LTL freight, but as somebody that hasn't been in this space, like what are your what are your real thoughts about what UPS letting go of the LTL sector and then having these booming earnings means? Well, I think internally they're going to have to be able to shift to kind of adapt to any kind of market changes rapidly. I mean, if they saw, I mean, this may have been just an incredible amount of. I won't say work study, but a case study mm -hmm. to see what would work, what wouldn't work, what they need internally. And so that could be a thing of like, all right, we have some idea of what doesn't work, what we're going to do moving forward. But I think, you know, just in order to survive, you're going to have to adapt, you're going to have to evolve. And I think maybe, you know, splitting was just best, you know, to kind of keep uh, margins mm -hmm. in line and keep shareholders happy. But really, I think it's just going to be a part of that in internal learning experience for how to move forward in the future. Yeah, I think I think it's a good play uh, for the sheer f idea that it's focused. Yeah, you know they can now focus on what they do, what they do best. LTL was not what they did best yeah. <laughs> by any means. So I hope for both parties involved that does work out for them. Um, you know, moving forward. So we've had some economic data releases. <laughs> yes, uh, that have come out, and you know, one of the big stories over the la over 2020 was the fact that we saw a, bunch of, a big disconnection between some traditional macroeconomic figures and industries like transportation and logistics. Uh, you know, what are, your, what are you seeing as we start this new year, 2021? Uh, we've still got plenty of time left in this year. We've still got plenty of disruption. What are some of these figures that you're looking at that maybe even come in back into alignment with uh, transportation and logistics? And what are the ones that you expect to be consistently diverging? So... I always split it up into um, consumers and industrial. So looking at the consumer, the thing that's just kind of come out of whack completely, of course, has been uh, employment levels and you know those initial jobs claims. And you see where employment trends are. Usually that's going to be indicative of the consumer sentiment, how they're feeling, how their purchasing habits. But that's not the norm right now. And you know, we have uh, still very high un unemployment levels. We still have uh, initial jobs claims that are still hovering around the over well over 800,000. I think the latest was just under 900,000 for the for the week. And so we still have very high continuing claims and initial jobs claims. So, but that's not being indicative of what's happening with actual volumes with retail sales. And of course, that's going to have some fiscal policy put into it. So mm -hmm. those two things have kind of turned away from each other. Right. Something that's going to come back in line, I think, is going to be industrial. So we're seeing some more activity for not only housing construction, but um, we're looking at uh, manufacturing. And so there's going to be, of course, headwinds there. We're looking at, I think, uh, commodity prices. That's going to be a rough one for, I think, a lot of individuals, a lot of companies. And I think it's going to have some downstream implications. The other part is going to be employment within manufacturing. So there is a demand for employment within manufacturing, but the thing is they're having trouble sourcing and maintaining that, that labor, whether it be to uh, uh, COVID restrictions or not really being able to really fill certain roles. So 
the, the demand, I would say, is quite there just yet, but it's building. Um, the resources are going to be the, the hard part to kind of pull everything together um, for that production. You have re uh, new orders really being uh, pretty strong right now, mm -hmm. um, but that employment level within, and within that industry is going to be tight, um, and those commodity prices, I think those are going to be the two big headwinds playing at manufacturing, but coming back in line with freight. Yeah, and we're seeing, uh, actually, the flatbed sector never really disconnected. Yeah. Uh, you know, we saw uh, flatbed rates, spot rates, and flatbed rejections uh, both stay relatively moderated uh, in comparison to the other two main modes of reefer and van. Um, and flatbed is now consistently growing. Like, there, it's not like a spike or anything that we would normally see in the other two modes, uh, but it's kind of like just keeping its ground. It's like the, uh, the tortoise and the hare. Like, the tortoise just keeps growing while the other two are kind of bouncing around. Uh, up yeah. there a little bit with a lot more volatility, but flatbed is holding its ground and starting to come back now. Uh, and I think as the industrial sector continues its slow rate of recovery, the flatbed sector will follow with it. Definitely, definitely. And it's not like we don't have support from other areas. Like I mentioned, housing, construction, building product materials. Yeah. I mean, that's another area where material costs are getting up there. You know, we're looking at lumber and framing material, but that's an industry that's growing ever so quickly. I mean, yeah. it's just, it keeps going, it keeps going. So. Um, between industrial and building, I think it's definitely going to be something. We have infrastructure bills that might yep. get passed, so how highway streets and uh, road construction might really help out with that, uh, that increase. All right. All right. Well, that'll about do it for today's show, but I have one question for you. Yes. Who wins the Super Bowl, Tom Brady or Pat Mahomes? New Mexico State. I think it's probably Tom. I don't know. Is this going to age well? I think Tampa's going to win. What do you think? I'm, I'm, I'm actually pulling for Tom Brady. I, I, I don't know why. I don't know why. We have I just, Crystal in the background saying Tampa Bay forever. She's Tampa biased. Bay. Thank She's you, totally Crystal, for biased. putting this together. Totally biased. <laughs> I hope this doesn't age poorly. I hope we don't come back. Thanks for watching.